0: Hey, folks, as we've seen, a lot can change in four years when it comes to U.S.-China relations. Things have gotten so bad that the very foundations of global stability are now under threat. However, the U.S. is about to have an election you may have heard of, which may drastically change the direction of things for better or for worse. That is why on November 11th and 12th, SubChina is hosting our fourth annual Next China Conference online. This year we are gathering together China specialists from all different fields to discuss what impact the elections will have on the next 4 years of US-China relations. If you are connected to China, this is a conference you will not want to miss. The event is free for SubChina Access subscribers. Now that is a great reason to subscribe. Go to events.subchina.com to get your tickets and to learn more about our unbelievably great lineup of speakers. That's events.supchina.com. We hope to see you there. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, the weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with SUPChina. SUPChina is simply the best way to keep on top of all the important news coming out of China, especially if you subscribe to our daily email newsletter, SUPChina Access. And visit subchina.com to check out our wide range of reported pieces, op eds, videos, and, of course, podcasts. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo. I'm coming to you today from my home in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Peter Xiao, founder and CEO of Immortal Studios. Peter is a film producer. His credits include the 1998 film Restless, which I believe many of you have seen. Uh, it was shot entirely in Beijing, as well as one of the real bridge builders in U.S.-China relations, not just in film but in many aspects of culture and business as well he founded the nonprofit China Week which puts on annual cultural events in southern california we were originally going to record this podcast live at China Week back in may but the coronavirus you know upended that as it did so many other things peter is also the son of the late great xiao yi who was one of the most beloved authors of wuxia xiaoshuo or martial arts novels that are devoured and, and, and enjoyed to this day by Chinese people the world over. Xiaoyi passed away in 2018, just 20 days after Sir Louis Cha, better known as Jin Yong, and it's in connection with his father's work and with the wuxia genre uh, that I've asked Peter to join us today on Seneca because when he told me about what he's got going, I was super excited and just to have him uh, on is just a great honor. Peter Xiao. What an overdue uh, visit to to us, and, and welcome to Seneca.
1: Thank you, man. I still have a memory of you, Kaiser, wearing your your fatigues at Cafe Cafe back in the day in Sunny Twin. Uh <laughs> This is before the scene started. That was the day, indeed. Um, you were day. in rock music, and I was in movies, and we were both Chinese Americans, and that's when the whole thing before everything blew up.
0: Yeah, I remember that that place well, Cafe Cafe on South yeah. Twin. <laughs> it was
1: like uh, like everybody who was working in the scene hung out at Cafe Cafe, and of course we've all moved on to do different things, and we're still here.
0: Yeah, we are, against all expectation to the contrary. Uh Anyway, Peter, let's start as good filial Chinese sons must by talking about your father and his work and its impact on you. Uh, you told me that you started reading wuxia epics when you were barely able to read at, like, age four, and you've never never really stopped, right? I
1: haven't stopped. Look, it's the reason that I still read Chinese, uh, I think it must have been Journey to the West or or uh and Yi, Romance of the Three Kingdoms or one one oh I think it was probably Chisa Wu Yu.
0: Uh-huh uh, 七下五义, uh. <laughs> All
1: my all my favorites and and that graduated me into real liter- Wuxia literature which were his books. Um and of course Jing Yong's books and Gu Long's books and you know these were also some of his contemporaries and friends so Uh, Other people were raised in political families or business families. Well, I was raised in a wuxia family, so that
0: (laughs) encompassed all my memories as a kid. I would trade you. That sounds like a better way to grow up than in a political family like mine. Uh, That's fantastic. You have this nice, succinct definition of what wuxia actually means. It's on the Kickstarter page to the comic series, The Adept, which we'll talk about in a bit. You said Wuxia is a fantasy genre of romanticism and poeticism from the East. It is the realm of the outsider, the wandering hero who is compelled by circumstance to stand against injustice and champion the common person. That, that's just a great definition. Uh, is there something that's distinctly Chinese about the Xia that distinguishes yeah. him from a cowboy hero of like from Western or like Cogburn and Labeef from True Grit or, or so a questing knight from like a Sir Walter Scott? Uh, novel or, well, there, or there, The there, Round Table.
1: There are several things. One is that I, I think you have Sha cannot be understood within the genre outside of Kung Fu. So uh-huh. obviously, there's this tradition of superhuman strength and powers and capabilities from cultivating the self. There's a very well defined transformative path in making one uh, superhuman. So, mm-hmm. um, and of course, because Shah comes from the east there's a there 's an element of being hidden, being more reserved, um, being less ostentatious, being less out there so the you know the Shah that is really talked about within the genre is someone who is almost a um, who 's reticent who 's not doing it in the public square, who likes to do his or her deeds in private hm hmm. coupled with this transformative superhuman capabilities, and together they they form. This amazing mystique, and and it's also impossible to talk about it without some of the philosophical ideals of the East. So that that comes from that's informed by Buddhism, uh, Taoism, of course, Hinduistic ideals. So they really, really converge together in creating something very, very potent, enigmatic, evocative. Uh, that's very, very different from the superhero of the West, who's flying around in his in a spandex, you know, has this name and. Does his or her deed standing, you know, atop a building or bitten, frankly, by radioactive spiders.
0: <laughs> so there's another word that's associated with, with Wuxia fiction. It, it's a word that a lot of people have a lot of trouble defining. That's the word Jianghu. How, how do you define the Jianghu?
1: Jianghu is, you could call it kind of, uh, the realm that, that, uh, these kind of martial heroes often inhabit. But it's mm-hmm. not exclusively so. So, jungu I think is associated with the the people outside of the political or elites. It's where yeah yeah it's a different group of elites. So it's of um, you know smugglers. It could be tax collectors. It could be the people who are um, living everyday lives, albeit in a um, more pedestrian way, but also governed by a lot of the rules of that particular universe. Uh, in the yeah, martial so. universe. They're ruling, you know, the martial world and Jianghu are interlinked. And Jianghu also comes to mind, uh, you know, certain clans and secret orders, uh, the rules of that particular universe, the rules of that game. So Hu is is part of it. You know, it's a big part of it.
0: So but it's the like Jianghu does
1: exist in China. It still exists.
0: Oh yeah, I mean, I know, like in the, the rock scene, they always refer to it as the Jianghu. Yeah, uh, and I'm sure that that's the same same thing for a lot of other scenes in China. People still like, say
1: it. I mean, you, you have people like Jack Ma; he still talks about the Jianghu.
0: Yeah, uh, the Jianghu so, of the internet world. Yeah, yeah. 人, oh, for z- sure.
1: 人在江湖身不有己, you know, which is you hear that quite often. You know, once you're part of this mix, you, you're you're forced to go go with the flow, and you're subject to the rules.
0: Yep, 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 yep. So Peter, after your father's passing, you acquired his estate and rights to all of his works. And on that foundation, you have this amazing ambition. And that's what I really want to focus on today. And when you talk to me about it, you, you talk to me about, you know, creating an Wuxia story verse, uh, that will, uh, you hope, I hope to become to the Wuxia genre, what the Marvel comic universe has become to the whole superhero genre. So, so let's talk about your vision.
1: Sure. Well, it's a, it's a pretty big vision. One is, um, because I'm my father's son and I grew up reading this. So I've, as an adult capable of independent thoughts and living my life, I've come to a, uh, a perspective on where I, I see the genre going or where it should go or where it originates from. So off of that understanding and of course then understanding of genre and how content works, um, I've I'm in the process of adapting his 60 pieces of IP into an interconnected universe. So the characters and the storylines now overlap. Um there's some continuity and we decided to change the backdrop because one of my beefs with with Wuxia, I I love the ancient days, I love ancient China, but it gives you the feeling like those are the yesteryears. So some of you know that kind of magic, that kind of um that kind of world is no longer visible today, which I think is a real shame because I, I think today's conditions are as ripe as ever, if not more so than it's ever been for that kind of storytelling to take place. So we, we made a bold, we're making a bold effort to bring all of that entire world to the modern day with an interconnected universe and characters. Um, we've also, I've kind of basically broke down four subsections of Wuxia because Wuxia is actually a big tent. -hmm. Within Wuxia, you can have, you have more the realistic fighting where kind of the mixed martial arts or even Shaolin or karate or the various martial influences that we can actually practice. So Cobra Kai would also live there as well. So that's one distinct world where things are a little bit more productive. You can actually understand it. You think, oh, if I practice, I can get there. On top of that, but the second, you know, we have the crouching tiger, hidden dragon, the hero universe, where it's very, it's more fantastical. People talk about Qing Gong, you know, the, the, ability to, to take flight. These are a lot more surreal. These are more very evolved. And beyond that, you have the realm of uh, the immortal swordsmen. These are almost semi demigods. These yeah. are legendary figures. This is where also like Zhang Shangfeng or the seven immortals would live. Beyond it, you have Journey to the West. You have something really, really transcendent, interconnected, cosmological, cosmological. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so we, we're building a story verse that brings in all four of those influences in an interconnected way. So that's never been done before, and to do it in the in a modern sense, where I, I think people have always, people who love the genre have the ability to suspend disbelief.
0: No, that's great. So four stages, or sort of four.
1: Four interconnected worlds with characters that would embody that and then you overlap them and you lay it with a level of realism and believability, philosophical authenticity, practice and authenticity and bring it all together. Because I think one of the complaints is that uh, it seems like everything goes. You know, here's a lightning bolt, here's a little bit of ass kicking, here's a little bit of this and somehow they all work together so… Um, in as much as we have those elements, but we're going to lay it out, I think, in a more logical way, because there is the um, there's a rational basis for putting it all together. So we're also doing that.
0: Right. So I mean, let's face it: there have not been a lot of elements of of Chinese culture that have successfully made their way into into American life. Uh, uh, of course, there's food. Um, that's been a wild global success. Right. The the other exception is. Martial arts. I mean, I've heard you say before that you think that China's one great cultural export could be its wuxia genre. I think you said that. I'm going to quote you here. Wuxia is the major Chinese contribution to global pop culture. It's the only thing that has persisted, and that continues. Uh, can you talk to me about why you think that is? And and when, when you say it's persisted, I, I suppose you mean despite the Cultural Revolution and despite all the, the, right. the changes that have happened.
1: Well, some of those influences came on while China kind of went to sleep on itself during the Cultural Revolution, but but because of uh, folks in Hong Kong and Taiwan and the diaspora, that kind those kind of legends continued, um, and of course, in no small part due to the the 70s and 80s, the golden era of Hong Kong filmmaking. You know, this was right. this was popularized, but I think there's something global and universal about needing heroes you know, really speaks to uh, everybody. And this is true across culture because tyranny exists everywhere. Um, you know, corruption exists everywhere. And in a more lawless environment, people rely on that kind of archetype. So there's a very, very deep and human need for heroes to inspire ourselves and to believe in the better angels. Um, and then you have the differentiated factor of, the, of Eastern mysticism, you know, mm-hmm. the, the ideals of perfection, the ideals of being superhuman, the ideals of cultivation. Um, and all of that adds a, a very differentiated factor. And together, it's a very, very potent mix that speaks to, I think, again, a universal aspiration that uh, seems uh, like the Eastern canon to no bring be bring that, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. There have been some phenomenal exceptions. You talked about the Golden Age and Hong Kong filmmaking, for example. But still, I feel like rarely have Chinese martial arts epics been done right. I mean, done in the way that I want to see them done. I mean, there's good English translations now of some of Jin Yong's books. But in a way that just, I mean, remains true to what they are in a Chinese context, while at the same time, being, you know, appealing for Western audiences outside of the niche of fanboys. Uh, part, part of that has just been, I think, when, when talking about film, limited technology uh, or, uh, you know, limitations in filmmaking know-how and limited budgets. But even now, I mean, all those things are basically solved, right? I mean, in China, they've got plenty of money and plenty of know-how, plenty of film technology. And plenty, um,
1: of, uh, plenty of censorship.
0: Which, oh, yeah, which that's true. It. Let's, let's so talk I, about I've, that. Is a factor. No, no, I think
1: that's a that's a serious factor that's limiting yeah, the yeah, progression yeah. of this dilemma because if it has to serve political purposes and gone through that filter, it's pretty hard. Um, and Kaiser, my position's always been: look, there's a lot of fans for martial arts films because it's easy. It's 90 minutes. It's two hours. I would argue, like recently, I, I watched this. It's supposed to be a definitive uh, documentary on Wuxia on Netflix. It did not mention Wuxia novels once. Wow. So to me, it's all in the literature.
0: The yeah, literature yeah,
1: yeah. inspired the movies without which it would be, not be possible. So it's a, it's a far richer, complex, complete Wuxia experience comes from the literature of which um, movies are only but a, uh, an extraction from that source. So, and of course, beyond the novels themselves, beyond the literature, there's the living practices, there are the living legends, there are the actual, uh, folklore, um, there are the various traditions that are involved. So in, in creating the mortal, we're really see, we're really tapping into that, the mother load. So I, I'm not trying, I am not deriving my interpretation of the genre from movies that were made in the seventies, because I think they're of a particular bent. And I actually have a problem with a lot of it, because to me, the, the The violence, the senselessness, the vengeance, you know they're but a fraction of the genre and in a, in a way they're missing the mark of how these kind of stories evolved and where they came yeah. from. so we're kind of not kind of
0: we want to go back to the original influences no, that's that's fantastic and and the first step in this Empire building is basically its graphic novels. I had the chance to read the first installment of the Adept um, by the way, I, I, I was pronouncing it the adept, but I always saw that you, you said the adept as the, the, the I, I've the heard it adjective. both
1: ways. I've heard it both okay.
0: ways. Adept is is like a person who is adept, right? But, right. Uh, so the adept works too, but uh, both ways, yeah. Anyway, we'll go with your pronunciation. The adept, it's this fantastic comic storytelling. I think it, it sets up a lot of mystery and develops these characters. I mean, in, in the space of a few pages. Pretty, pretty deeply, pretty quickly, and there's lots of action. Of course, it just looks fantastic. I really loved it. My, um, I, I gave it to my daughter to look at, and she really t- dug it too. She says, "Where's the next one?" Uh, it's coming. I'm, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not an expert on graphic novels or comics, but um, it, it looks like it could have quite a, a bit of appeal. Uh, another one that I am really looking forward to is called "The uh, Chronicles of the Immortal Swordsman." Can you tell us what's going on with that? Sure, that looks well, great.
1: This is my, this is my favorite book growing up. So it really, the movie, I mean, that book inspired me greatly. I remember reading it as a six year old kid and just like looking at the sky. I really like did what I was supposed to do. And I never forgot about that book. Um, about 20 years ago, I actually had sold it to Lionsgate and I had to buy it back because there's no way I was going to let someone mess it up because they were just really struggling with it. So I got the Chronicles of the Immortal Swordsman back and it's a story of the it's a very classic story because my my dad was one of the guys who actually kept the subgenre of immortal swordsman also known as shensha genre going because there was this 60 70 years where people stopped writing that and he picked up the flag so he's known as this is this is the story that kept the shensha sub genre going from a hundred years ago into modernity, and of course, it spawned other things. It's a classic story of someone becoming an immortal. Um, it used to take place in the ancient China's ancient mountains of ancient China, and you know there there are various um, regimented aspects of the genre. How you find the the teacher, because you're the teacher is supposed to come to you. You cannot find the teacher. It's, right. There are certain rules with the subgenre. So we've actually changed um, the ancient Chinas, the mountains of ancient China for L.A. Chinatown. So that kid okay. is now turned into <laughs> a Chinese-American kid growing up. And then so there's just a lot of really amazing modern elements added in while keeping the fantasy real and grounded with an introduction of technology And after interviewing, working with so many writers over the past eight years, I put myself in the writer's seat. So I've just completed the first two uh, issues of The Chronicles of the Immortal Swordsman written, uh, which I adapted
0: personally. I I can't wait to see it.
1: I put myself in the writer's seat. Um, We're really excited about it.
0: And it's going to be a graphic novel as well.
1: It's going to be a graphic novel. Well, it's going to start as comics, and then after we get three or four issues out together, they comprise a graphic novel.
0: So, so you're going for these modern modern settings, but you're also uh, going to sort of delve back into history for the backstory and stuff like Absolutely.
1: that. Absolutely, right? because look, the the authenticity of it is really really important to us because these are real traditions. I have a real problem with creators right now who just you know are just grabbing things out of thin air as though there is no there there to draw from. So we're going back to the authentic roots because there are people who consider themselves. Um, on the path of being an immortal swordsman. I've met some of them. So it's a real thing.
0: <laughs> I've met some people who think they're on the path of being immortal guitarist, but. Um, Probably pretty similar. Oh my God, it's completely the same. I think, you know, there's such an overlap between heavy metal guys and Usha f- mm-hmm. fans. I mean, it's the same thing. It's just you substitute like musical chops for, you know, for kung fu skill and it's it but just maps perfectly.
1: I've actually done one of these trips one of these um, hiking trips through Zhongnan mountains and various ancient mountains in China. So some of these people do exist. And I've what? had I've had the benefit of sitting down talking to them. I've seen some of their 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 stuff. Um, so it part of this writing is really an ode to a real tradition that continues to exist and people pursuing a very just unprecedented, they have an unprecedented perspective. Um, and I want to really honor that real tradition in in our work as well.
0: Uh, so in, in a lot of ways, what you're doing um, is actually quite pioneering and, and actually progressive. I mean, in, in The Adept, you've put an Asian woman at the very center of the story. I mean, of course, I guess your father had done that 40 years ago when he published yeah. Sister Gun 19. Uh, and with Mulan and all that stuff, all the ideas of, you know, a heroine as the protagonist aren't entirely new, but still, it feels like if everything falls into place, I mean, we could see another kind of Black Panther moment, you know, with, when Chadwick Boseman, he died recently, of course. Yeah. I, so I've been thinking about, about what Black Panther did and the cultural impact for, for, for Black Americans. I mean, is, are you, are you, were you partially inspired by?
1: Absolutely. I was inspired. Look, um, Growing up Chinese-American, and actually growing up in Hollywood, uh, I thought I had to go to China in order to make content that had people who look like me in central roles. Mm -hmm. So Black Panther, I think, really shattered that ceiling for everybody. So I think we've entered a a very, very exciting and dynamic period where uh, finally America is really living up to its own strengths in the diverse strengths. It hasn't been proven beyond a shadow of a doubt, but by every indicator, people are ready for that. That's not to say you can't, you know, ultimately we have to tell very, very compelling stories. So properly representing uh, Chinese wuxia to the world is something that we take incredibly seriously. But in addition to representing um, Chinese people and the Chinese experience, um, we're also expanding the genre to include everybody. So, because we have, we deal in so many stories, because we have so many different characters. Uh, for instance, I'm crafting African American characters. I'm, I'm crafting all kinds of people to step into this, these Wuxia stories, because we, the message is that everybody can be a hero, and we want to awaken the hero in everybody through Wuxia. And that makes it very different, and also very of this moment. And this is something, frankly, a Chinese American can do that, Um, probably a a Chinese creator could not do right now. So we're really thinking about how do we take this, how do we continue this tradition now onto the world?
0: So are people who are familiar with your father's works going to be able to see this stuff and recognize the story um, as as being...
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: So so like watching watching Clueless, you knew that that was Emma or that kind of thing? um,
1: Because I've now put myself in the role of being the editor-in-chief, in addition to the head of the company. So, I work very carefully with the original source material by my side, and I'm going through each line, each scene, each characters, and I tell all of our creators, if you can't make it better, then this stays. But if you make it better, then that changes. So, so but look, my dad was, remains an amazing creator. I'm, I'm, I'm such in awe of what he does and in such a visual way. So people who like my dad's work, they're going to see an, an unadulterated version and a vision. Of course, knowing some of his intentions and frankly, knowing a lot of his limitations. Because this is how creators used to make their living back in the day. The, the guys who were actually working for a living, they, they, they wrote daily and their works were syndicated by newspapers instantaneously. So I remember yeah. this visual of my dad laboring at his desk writing on thick pads of paper with carbon in between and <laughs> these the writing gets stuffed in an envelope and the next day you see it syndicated on television. So there was no pre-planning, there was no editor saying, well, "What about developing this character?" There wasn't, you couldn't overthink it because in order to make it go, that's how people made a living and then the 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 novels were compiled afterwards so there is um and just now having worked in the creative industry for so many years like i'm surprised by how good it is without that kind of back and forth that kind of development and planning and honing so my dad never had a shot to properly hone his work he never he just wrote in a stream of consciousness in the, way and then it went out and then whatever became of them became of them so in a way i have a chance to revisit and and improve and develop and deepen some of the things that he's done and of course adding my own experiences um to it so it's almost it's um it's a dream come true i can't believe i get to do it
0: yeah did he ever get a chance to work on any of the film or television serial adaptations of his he he has
1: he has he's written um he's written 20 movies Sometimes oh, wow, exclusively,
0: okay. um, for film, for
1: original, original concepts. So 20 of his screenplays have been made into films and he's had, ah, well. he's had at least, um, I don't know, as many television shows. I remember when I was growing up, I've seen some of his movies and movie theaters and his television shows and visited a few sets. He gave that all, all up when he became an, an American at the height of his career.
0: Well, and why did he move to the States? And that was like in the late 70s, right?
1: This was 77. Uh, well, he was the last to go. His, our entire, the entire Xiao family had immigrated all over the world, and he was the last one remaining there. And I think there was in also Taiwan, yeah. in Taiwan. There was also concerns about, you know, in the 70s, Taiwan was still relatively unstable. I think you always felt like the other shoe was going to drop. Um, so he decided to join his family, and and I think he forewent, uh the the golden chapters of, of his own. Stardom to become an anonymous Chinese American writer working in America while, you know, honing some of his classics But people didn't know him here and he somehow yeah. managed to have a continuity of the career by 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 no management whatsoever So it was really the sheer strength of his own writing and then of course He was discovered by China in the 80s and then had a had an amazing second chapter where he became one of the most celebrated Wu writers in China you know, when he was fairly active, thereby creating this, you know, Nanjing Beixiao
0: people in the people in the south region, young people in the north, uh, Red Shaoyi. Red So tell me about that Nanjing uh, Beixiao. What is it about your father's work that appealed maybe more to northerners than the southerners?
1: Um, well, because we are our ancestral home is from Shandong.
0: Yeah, from Heze, right? From
1: Heze, so it's the it's the home of bandits. It's the home of uh, it's 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 where (laughs) it says that on the signs you It's where the the Chinese boxers come from. They're crazy enough. It's also where the people from the water margin came from. So there's a very rugged, uh, straightforward, authentic martial tradition, and so we pride ourselves on being Northerners, and we have that perspective, and I think it comes across. Um, that kind of rugged individualistic thing. So in my dad's writing you're more likely to have a sha. whereas I think other writer writers will spend more time on the Jianghu, the intricacies of that kind of life. So there's there's a stylistic difference hmm. that comes interesting. across.
0: Yeah, that's that's uh, it reminds me of this interview that we did with this guy named Thomas Talhelm, who had written this interesting study of northerners and southerners based on rice cultivation in the South versus wheat cultivation in the North and uh, the different sort of sociological impact of those because you need so much more sort of community effort to grow rice. It requires, you know, really coordinated planting all at the same time or the transplanting of seedlings and a lot of irrigation, whereas the North with rainfall agriculture, you know, individuals, individual farmers, individual families can, you know, can, can cultivate a field. And he his conclusion was that there and did a whole bunch of other sort of psychological experiments to parallel this that that in fact northerners do tend to be more individualistic that's that's yeah interesting that yeah
1: I've had a chance to visit hudza and just had the the chance of a lifetime to go back with my dad actually, so you know I'm still burning up on my on my own uh hudza bona fides, but uh, I've gone <laughs> back to my ancestral home and, and you know it's Impossible to talk about this without talking about my own grandfather. Because I think there is a generational thing where my grandfather was known as the, um, the war god of, of, of that <laughs> entire region by having participated in the defense of China uh, against the Japanese invasion. So I, wow. think, I think there was a big part of that martial tradition that passed over from my grandfather by virtue of coming from Hezo to my dad. And somehow it made its way to me. You know, I think there was a moment in time when I spent a lot of time with my dad. So in as much as it's really sad to see him go, uh, by the time we said goodbye, I felt like the handoff was complete. You know, there's a recognition that what um, was very much alive and, and passion in and his spirit somehow was awakened in me. You know, it's kind of esoteric, I can't really describe it, but there's this one day I woke up and I said, whatever my dad wanted to give to me, I got it. I know I have it. And so it's still with me today, and I rely on that voice to guide me through this iteration. So in so many ways, it's it's a very Chinese story.
0: Peter, tell me about Immortal Studios itself, uh, about some of the folks that you've attracted to you. um, Because, you know, you're putting together a little bandit army. We are. We are. We we call
1: it kind of the A-team. I'm really glad that um, the the editor-in-chief of Marvel during one of their golden eras carl potts has joined our team so i work very closely with carl we have all kinds of ideas because i think there's a lot of stuff that marvel has learned in birthing their universe that we want to we want to stand on their shoulders we have we have very talented product managers so i think of this business not just as a creative enterprise i think we're a thousand percent creative passionate and we we believe in the stories, but to build a a really powerful 21st century content studio, you know, on, with the backbone of technology and looking at the entertainment industry in a very evolved way because there are some fundamental shifts. So we are building a direct to consumer business that's really around the fan experience and engagement where social media and uh, transmedia applications, audience engagement, user-generated content, all of those things are a part of the mix, so, so it's a yin-yang mix. So our business game is very, very tight, and we've got a core group of 10 very talented people, from social, from product, to technology, to strategy, and each of them... Uh, having achieved a level of mastery in all the, their respective fields. So really putting that team together and
0: we're just getting started. And all of them buy into the, the sort of essentially Chinese core elements to this, right? I mean, I'll, yeah, I mean, they, look, they, we they, we're, they, you we're, get it.
1: We're, our model is to awaken the hero in everybody. Obviously, everybody, not just to the Chinese. There's a recognition, there's a respect that it comes from China. But there's also a recognition that we are stepping outside of racial boundaries while paying homage and proper respect to the origins. And there there is this balancing, but ultimately our goal is to take it the message all over the world. So, And I think we all believe Wuxia is the perfect vehicle for that.
0: So the plan is to begin with comics, with graphic novels, and then assuming that that catches fire, uh, to partner up maybe with a big studio, maybe a Sony Pictures, and then turn one of these into a major film franchise, something for the big screen or for for HBO or something like that?
1: Yeah, well, we're never going to back away from the comic world. Mm -hmm, I'm now mm -hmm. a a lover of this art form, and it's going to be an evergreen part of our business. And it's a really really amazing art form. It works very quickly, and it's also COVID uh, disruption-proof. So for a variety of reasons, we love this comic form. There are very good fans who are committed to this. So we're going to continue to publish on a pretty good cadence and that business never goes away. Um, and the vision is not to part, not to be subsumed under a studio. You know, frankly, we've had those opportunities already, but to build our own fan base and a data oriented business so that we could Openly compete with everybody because the name of the game is really, if you have a fan base that's connected to you, we don't need to be intermediate, intermediated by third parties, including studios. I'm happy to partner with them, but it's not going to be the kind of exploitation relationship that we've seen in the past. So we're, we're prepared to step on our, stand our own two feet. And this is where having been a film entrepreneur, media entrepreneur, there's no mystery in how Films are packaged and sold or financed. So, we have, frankly, a lot of those capabilities even on our own board
0: today. You think there's interest from the Chinese side in funding something like this? Have you have you had interest from? Say, um,
1: to tell you the truth, we were very adamant about creating a an American company right now that belongs to the world, and we want to we want to succeed in the English language world first before. Uh, and and then consider how we're going to grow in China.
0: Okay. So yeah, that, that makes sense because I I can imagine like a company like Tencent just seeing the the video game possibilities and seeing the uh, yep. yeah yeah yeah. We've that... we've
1: had um, discussions before this moment of, of of acquiring my father's library and doing a variety of things. With uh, with uh, the BATS of the world, so we welcome the opportunity to work with them. But ultimately, mm. it's going to be on our terms and not anybody else's. So we're very gotta, we're fiercely I mean, independent point, that way.
0: At one point, you were managing, I think at least for North America, the brand uh, Shaolin. Right? Yes, yes. Yeah how, how how was that? What was that experience like? Because I know there was, was you know there's always been a lot of controversy around it in in, in China. China, right.
1: But look, I consider the abbot a friend, um, and I've spent enough time with them, um, both on stages and in person to have, to form a personal opinion about him. But ultimately, Shaolin is the repository of much of the, the mythology of Kung Fu and being invited and given the keys to go behind the, the, the outer, the outer shells into the inner sanctum and to, and to see a, um, an amazing heritage that's very much alive was that was an honor of a lifetime so having um, I really got to geek out by learning from a lot of the masters who continue this this lineage um, and the authenticity to see where it all comes from and to know that there is a lot of there there and a lot of reality and then so that further gave me the confidence to extrapolate those ideas and now to bring it hopefully in an authentic way. And uh, we talked about our first book, The Adept. So one of our goals is to bring, because The Adept, the Amy, the lead character actually learns from a Shaolin master. So we're, I'm very much involved in working with the writers to make sure that a lot of my authentic Shaolin experiences uh, get funneled in
0: that way as well. That's just that's that's just wonderful, yeah. And the adept is is great. I I can't wait for the next installment. When when is it? You think? Um,
1: look, we're gonna be in production on our second and third book before the year's over, so stay tuned.
0: Okay, <laughs> stay tuned. Great. We're
1: we're making some adjustments, and the adept. I'll just I'll just I'll just say it here. Is going to really address a lot of things that people are talking about, including. Who can kick better ass, you know, traditional kung fu or mixed martial arts? So we have, we have a lot to say about you know, various trending topics from this kind of immortal perspective.
0: (laughs) All right, looking forward to it. Peter, thanks so much for taking the time. What a pleasure it's been talking to you. Uh, Let's move on now to recommendations, but first a quick reminder that the best way to support the work that we're doing with Seneca and all the network shows is to subscribe to our SubChina Access newsletter. If you aren't already subscribing, please do. It's truly amazing. You'll find it is money very well spent. Okay, Peter, recommendations. I'm going to give you a license to completely self-promote uh, on your stuff here because <laughs> it's 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 great
1: look um, for people who are interested in what we're doing uh, I I'd like to invite you to visit our website which is immortal studioscom uh, as you're listening to this we're experimenting with a version of crowdfunding that's never been we've never done before which is uh, an equity raise so we're inviting people who like our vision who want to see a, a um, this kind of martial universe to participate in our WeFunder campaign. So you can just look go to WeFunder.com and look up Immortal Studios. So thanks for letting me pitch you guys.
0: Hey, thanks. Okay, so for my recommendation, I mentioned Sir Walter Scott at the top of the hour, thinking about Western parallels to Wuxia. And uh, that may have been subliminally suggested to me by the fact that not long ago, I watched the 1997 uh series. It's a six-episode series by the BBC of Ivanhoe, uh, and if for no other reason you should watch it, because the late Christopher Lee plays the head of the Knights Templar in in that, and he's just fantastically evil, and and uh, it's great. Anyway, um, I think on this show I've probably recommended before re-watching the 1983 or whatever version, it was from the early 1980s, uh, that television version of Ivanhoe, uh, this BBC one from 97 is just, um, it it isn't as campy, but it's, it's quite well done and it gets to tell the entire story out over, you know, the full nearly six hours. Um, highly recommended. Anyway, uh, thanks once again. That's uh, what a great conversation. And I just, I can't wait to see you. I mean, you. Make sure you send me some of that stuff on I'll share it just really closely, but only with my daughter. You got who's it. Who's already a fan. You're, I'll, okay, I'll man. send
1: it to you on the QT. <laughs> All
0: right. Thanks so much, man. Great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. The Seneca Podcast is powered by China and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn, with editing help by Jason McRonald. Drop us an email at sineca at SupChina.com. Follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at, at news, And make sure to check out all the other shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.